My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, John is traveling for the next seven weeks. So, as we would say in America, y'all get me. And so, I am eager to bring uh, the word this evening. Um, but we need God's help. And so, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that every word of Scripture comes from you. And it is profitable for us. Lord, I pray that as we look at this text this evening, that you would speak to us through your word. You, Lord, are the father to the fatherless. You are the protector of widows, the defender of the weak. And so we praise you, God. We pray that as we look at your word this evening, you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 16, which Priscilla just read for us. And as I was looking at this text this week, I was reminded of Alma Walker. Alma was a uh, receptionist at a previous church that I served on staff at in the United States. She was in her 80s, and for years and years, she had faithfully ministered alongside her husband as a pastor's wife until he died. And then she continued in ministry in informal ways. She served tirelessly at this church. Alma was in her 80s, and she would show up every single day serving by answering the phones, by welcoming people who came into the office as God in Christ welcomed us. She coordinated and participated in ministries with her fellow saints and for her fellow saints. Alma was one of those people that when you talked to her, she was fully there. I don't know if you know people like that. Sometimes you can talk to somebody and you can tell their, their mind's going elsewhere. Alma was always, is always, fully engaged in any conversation that she was in. And she continues to serve in that way. In God's providence, we're preaching on this text, I got an email last week from Alma. She sent me an email because she has a heart for young preachers. So Alma was there when I was a fresh seminary student graduate preaching my first sermon, and she had heard countless bad sermons from first-time preachers, and she was always there to encourage them to continue. And she wrote this just last week. She said, My husband loved to preach the truth, and he did so for over 40 years. We are so blessed to have the memories of the way God proved himself faithful. Ministry is hard, but ever so rewarding. Now in this season of life, physical challenges prevent me from activity. But God has given me the ministry of prayer and encouragement. Once called to full-time ministry and never getting away from it. Soon to be 89 years old. Wow. The mercy of God to keep me dwelling in the secret place under his shadow. When I'm 89 years old, I want to be as amazed and floored with the mercy of God in keeping us to dwell under his shadow as Alma is. Our society is obsessed with quick and instantaneous success. We like things big and we like things fast. 
And in doing so, we can miss what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction, pointing our eyes towards Jesus and walking step by step, year after year, in ordinary, faithful Christian living. The glory of that sort of living can outshine the largest megachurch or the biggest conference or the fastest movement. Ministry that will last for decades should be cultivated and celebrated in the local church. In our text this evening, we're looking at how the church is called to care for widows, both older widows and younger widows. As Pastor John showed us last week, we're in a section in 1 Timothy where Paul is concerned about caring for those who are truly in need, what he calls truly widows. And what we'll see from our text this evening is that in its care for widows, the church is called to celebrate and cultivate faithful Christian living in the ordinary structures that God has created. That in its care for widows, the church is called to cultivate and celebrate faithful Christian living in the structures that God has created. And to see this, we're going to look at three groups of people. The first are older widows. The second group is younger widows. And the third group is the whole church. We're going to walk through this text looking at these three different groups of people. And then we're going to wrap up with some implications for our church in particular. So let's look at our first group here, older widows. Paul is concerned for caring for those who are truly in need. If you were here last week, Pastor John was talking about the responsibility that relatives have to care for their aging parents. Paul wants to have the church, the corporate church, be able to focus its care on those who are truly in need. And Christians who have parents who are aging and in need, those individual Christians should be the ones who care for them. But those who are truly widows, those who are ultimately in need of care, the church should take responsibility for. But even then, Paul gives us qualifications. He doesn't just say, if you don't have anyone, then you can be enlisted, or you can be enrolled for the church's care. No, he says, if you don't have one, there's still qualifications to be enlisted. And he says these qualifications in verses 9 through 10. He says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. The early church did not have a modern medical health care system that the government provided to care for people who were in need. The early church didn't have Medicare, which is in my home country, where the government will provide assistance as people get older. When you got older, if you didn't have anyone to care for you, then the church would take on certain people, and that was a costly endeavor. It meant providing food daily, distributing the food among those in need. And these early churches, they weren't megachurches. Right? They weren't churches with huge budgets. 
that could just give away money whenever they saw fit. They were called to steward their meager resources that they had. Some members of the early church were slaves. It's true, there were some wealthy members, but all in all, these were small, lower-income churches. They were limited in their resources. And so Paul gives a list of qualifications to help these churches know who should we prioritize in our material care. So who should we provide for financially? And he gives eight qualifications. You can see them on the screen. The first is elderly. A widow should not be enrolled unless she's over 60 years of age. What Paul's getting at here is this person is above both the age for remarrying and the age likely when she would be able to work for herself and provide a living for herself. Now, there probably were widows in the early church who were over the age of childbearing and yet able to get jobs and work and provide a meager living for themselves. And Paul's talking here about those who are utterly in need. Next, he says that she needs to be faithful. The, the text here says the wife of one husband. Now, this doesn't mean that she could not have been remarried before, that she had a husband, that husband died, and she remarried another, and then is now disqualified from the care of the church. When it says wife of one husband, this is the same sort of wording that's used for elders. Elders are called to be one woman men. That is, they're faithful to their wives. Now, we don't know if Paul was married. Jesus wasn't married. But they were one woman man. They were faithful to their spouses. That's what widows are called to be as well. They're called to be one man woman. I think I messed up the plural there. One man woman. Uh, they're called to be faithful. If they were married, which they were because they were widows, then they were faithful to their husband. They're called to have a reputation for good works. They're known in the community as being those who are devoted to God and obedient to God. They've cared for children. Now, I don't think that this means that only eligible widows were those who had raised children. We just know of too many instances in the Bible of God closing the wombs of otherwise faithful women who are pursuing him. What I think this is saying is like the faithful to their husband, if these widows had children, they provided for them. They cared for them. They brought them up materially, physically, and spiritually. They were devoted to those that were nearest to them in their own household. They've shown hospitality. They've invited people into their home and into their lives. They've washed the feet of the saints. They've served. These, these widows that were to be enlisted for the church's care were Christ-like in their care. This washing the feet of the saints... It, it, it may mean actually washing the feet of the saints. Likely it just means service. They've poured themselves out for others. The imagery that Paul uses here communicates humility and service. These are not proud, exalted women. They're humble, like their Savior. They've cared for the afflicted. And then kind of as a summary statement, Paul throws in, they are devoted to every good work. They are devoted to Christ in every area of their lives. Now, why does Paul give such a list? I mean, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament know that Christians are to be generous with what we have, even to our enemies. 
So why is Paul making it so difficult for someone to be cared for by the church? Well, I mentioned the finite resources, the limited resource the church was had. Surely I think that plays a part of it. But I think even more than that is that these widows served as an example where the church could point to and would say, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is a lifestyle that is exemplary. This is a lifestyle that is worthy of honor. That's the word that it shows earlier. It says, honor widows who are truly widows. We are honoring this sort of a woman. These widows reveal the characteristics that the church cares about. You can put them in the room and they look like Jesus to the watching world. In this way, the list that Paul is calling to, it serves as a witness. It serves as an evangelistic tool where you could say, this is the sort of person that Jesus is pleased with. And one final note before we move on, I have to say this because we're Redeemer Alain, this list assumes membership in the church. Sometimes we can think that the early church had nothing in common with the modern church. Like the modern church is very programmatic and structured and we have email addresses and WhatsApp. The early church was just one big family. We were informally caring for one another, organically meeting needs. Now, there is a big divide between our context and the early church context, but this list implies a level of formality. It implies a list, people who are known, qualifications to get onto it. It also implies programs, structures, administrators. So we should be careful too easily looking at our church today and dismissing it in light of what we think the early church would have looked like. Now, I'm under no illusion that our church does look different than the early church, but the early church probably looked more formal than we think it did. Okay, so that's caring for older widows. Let's look at our next group, younger widows. I mentioned that this list, it serves as a witness to the watching world, and you can see that Paul is concerned about the church's holiness by the advice that he gives to younger widows. Paul says that we should actually even refuse to enroll younger widows on the list for the church's care. Why would Paul do that? Is Paul just being mean or heartless? I don't think so. While it may come across like that to us reading it, I think as we look at this verse and these passages of Scripture, we see that Paul is refusing to enroll younger widows because Paul cares for younger widows, because Paul loves younger widows, and because Paul is concerned for their souls. Look at verse 11. It says, Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. There's a danger for younger widows who remain under the care of their church in their youth. The danger is that their extended free time and their status as recipients of financial provision would set them up to be drawn away from faith in Christ. Now, some of your Bibles may have 
another translation there from their former faith in verse 12. It may say first pledge. I don't know if any of your Bibles say that. That's an interpretation, trying to understand why and how this passage unfolds. Some of the early uh, church fathers interpreted this as a pledge of widowhood, like a devotion to chastity to Christ, kind of like in a, um, a monastery. Um, and so in that sense, the early church interpreted this as a pledge of widowhood, but I don't think that's what's going on here. The reason is because they're being drawn away from Christ. They're being drawn away from their former faith. And that's how it is in the original Greek, is it's first faith. So I think the ESV is right here. The stakes are high. This is a concern for the salvation of younger widows. Paul wants them to guard against being drawn away. But how would they be drawn away from Christ? Well, we can see this in two ways. First, their passions would draw them away from Christ in pursuit of marriage. Now, this could be confusing to some people. This entire passage could be confusing to some people. How does marriage serve to draw people away from Christ? Does this mean that it's wrong for younger widows to get remarried? Well, that can't be right. Because if you keep reading a few verses later, the encouragement that Paul's going to give is that they would marry. So the reason why Paul's concerned about them being drawn away from Christ in pursuit of marriage is not whether or not they want to be married. The concern that Paul has is why do you want to be married? Why are you pursuing marriage? Paul in this verse is talking about remarrying for the wrong reasons, for reasons that aren't honoring to God, for sinful passions. The word that Paul uses here for the, when they're passions, right? The word that Paul uses for passions that you see there, that word implies luxury, a desire for luxury, or being governed by sensuality. And so that's what's leading them to want to marry. And you can imagine the situation today. You have a young woman and a young man, and they get married. And both of them have dreams for what their future would look like. And tragedy strikes. And the man dies. And this young woman is left all by herself. With the death of her husband come the death of dreams. Dreams for stability. Dreams for children. Dreams for comfort and intimacy and companionship. Those are not bad dreams. But as she is in this situation mourning the death of her husband and the death of her dreams, Satan comes in and he tempts her. He tempts her to take those dreams that are good dreams and to make them her ultimate desires and to say, you deserve to have this. Why would God take this away from you? And so what this woman does is she pursues those good dreams and good desires at all costs and is willing to marry someone who doesn't embody what a Christian husband is supposed to look like. Or she marries in a way to fulfill her longings and her passions at the expense of her following of Jesus. 
And in so doing, in the midst of this tragedy, Satan has drawn this woman, and her own sinful desires have drawn her away from following Christ. And this is a real temptation for us today. How many of us know women, maybe not widows, but single women, who have good desires for marriage, who have good desires for companionship, who have desires for stability, desires for a normal family life, and they're willing to compromise their following of Jesus in order to pursue those desires, whether it's running into the arms of an unbeliever, whether it is pursuing intimacy outside of marriage at the expense of purity, whether it's idolizing a certain type of lifestyle at the expense of Christ. And in doing so, they will find themselves drawn away from Christ when they worship their desires above Jesus. This is a temptation. And it's not just for women. This is a temptation for men as well. And if you're here tonight, and you're hearing what I'm saying, and you're saying, I don't understand why that's a bad thing. I don't understand why the worldly blessings and the worldly comforts that can come in this life at the expense of Christ, why is that a bad thing? After all, you only live once, so why not live in such a way that is happy here in the present? And if that's you tonight, then I would say you need to consider how serious the consequences are of being separated from Jesus. The Bible says that in God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You can have the greatest blessings in the world, and if God is there, they will not compare. And if you take the greatest blessings in the world at the expense of God, then not only will those things not satisfy you, but those things will not be there for you forever. You will die, and you will spend forever apart from the place of highest good. Wanting people, including younger widows, to stay close to Jesus, to not be drawn away, but to be near him, engaged in fellowship and communion and relationship with Jesus, wanting that for people is the way that you love people. It is the way that you care for people. So one danger for enrolling younger widows is that the financial provision and the extended free time would allow for their sinful passions to flow up and to draw them away from Christ, to pursue luxury and sensuality apart from Christ. The second danger that Paul gives is that they will use their free time for sinful ends, for idleness and gossip and division in the church. Do you see that in verse 13? Besides this, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not say. Thomas Brooks, writing in 1665, called idleness a mother sin. What he means by that is that idleness gives birth to other sins. It is a sin to be idle, but idleness doesn't stay by itself. How many other sins can flow from idleness? Here Paul mentions gossips, busybodies, that is, curious as to what's going on in people's business. The sin of idleness so often gives way to other sins. We, 
we think of David in the Old Testament at the time when kings should have gone off to war, and David is by himself on his roof, walking around, strolling, and he sees Bathsheba, and he takes her. That idleness gave way to a grievous sin. We think of people today filling their hours, scrolling on social media, looking to see what's going on in everyone's life, making judgment calls, maybe creating division, conflict, spreading rumors. Idleness gives way to gossip and being a busybody. Or we think of people with too much free time and too little accountability in their life. And in their evenings, they're filling their evenings watching pornography or engaging in drunkenness. Had they been busy, they may not have had the same temptation, but being idle gave way to more sins. It is a grace to be productive. God made us to work. It is a grace to be productive. And if younger widows are put in a position where they aren't working, even with noble intentions, that grace of work can be removed and it can lead to other sins and other temptations. So if Paul refuses to enroll younger widows, how should the church care for these women? By encouraging them to marry and to be busy in the family structure that God intended. Verse 14, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. It is not wrong for younger widows to remarry. In fact, it's a way that you can glorify and honor God and guard against satanic attack through marriage. Marriage is a means of protecting against temptation. But then notice the sort of life that Paul points out. It's the same that is honored and celebrated in the older widows, the older saints, this being dedicated to their husband raising their children, being busy at home, managing their households. The same ordinary, faithful Christian living that Paul celebrates in the older saints, he calls younger widows to aspire to. One quick assumption of this command is that the church would have men who would be willing and eager to marry these sort of women. That there would be single men who are willing to pursue and marry younger widows. That the church would be marked by men like Boaz as they cared for Ruth in the Old Testament. Caring for their sisters in Christ. And I pray that the single men in our church, we don't have many, but that the single men in our church would think of the needs of their sisters in Christ that they would count others more significant than themselves, that they wouldn't only be making decisions about their future with themselves in mind, but they would think, how can I be a blessing to my sisters in Christ as I pursue marriage myself? This isn't the only reason to marry, but it is a glorious way to honor God and to love our sisters in Christ. Paul closes this section by talking about the whole church and pointing out the church's responsibility once again to care for widows. He says in verse 16, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, that it may care for those who are truly widows. Paul likely singles out women 
to care, so believing women, because they would have borne the primary day-in and day-out responsibilities of meeting the needs of these widows. But verse 3 has said any relative is responsible to care for the needs of the saints. So Paul singles out here believing women, but this applies to all relatives. The individual members of the church are to care for their own family members so that the church, corporate, institution, is able to care for those who are utterly in need in their provision. The family structure, as ordinary as it may seem, it is by God's design. It's not merely a product of culture. God created it, and he calls us to serve faithfully in it, to love those who are within our immediate family, and to be sacrificial in the way we think about supporting our parents as they age, or supporting our grandparents as they age. Now, in the new covenant, an amazing thing happens. God creates a new family for himself. The people of God becomes a spiritual household, and the center of community revolves around Jesus. And he has sons and daughters that are not his biologically. He has brothers and sisters in the family of God. And this is good news for those of us who don't have an earthly family. It's that we have a people that we belong to. We have family members who care for us. But the new covenant community of the church, it doesn't replace the other structures that God creates, like the earthly family. And as earthly families make up the church, they're responsible to care for themselves and to care for their other brothers and sisters in Christ by meeting the needs of those around them. I want to close this evening with three implications for Redeemer Alain in particular. As Pastor John mentioned last week when we got into this section, this is a little bit of a strange passage to talk about in the UAE because for most of us, we have these things called visas that we have to be on. There's labor laws that prevent there from being widows who don't have financial support significantly in this context. And yet, there's still a number of things that this passage comes to bear upon our church in particular. And I want to draw out three of those this evening. And the first is that we should celebrate and aspire to the characteristics that God is concerned about. As a church, the things that we should make much of and the things that we should celebrate are the characteristics that God is concerned about. There may be some in this room this evening who hear Paul's counsel to younger widows and they hear it with cynicism. Marry, bear children, manage their households. We think of that and we think, where, where's the glory in that? Isn't that just an ordinary life? Isn't that just below us? Shouldn't we aspire to great things? Or we might think of the qualifications that are listed in verses 9 through 10 for older widows. And we think, I don't want to wash feet. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've seen the UAE heat. I've seen the sand. Right? I know what that does to feet. I don't want to wash feet. Right? I want to be the master of my life. I don't want to be a servant. But brothers and sisters, the, the road of ordinary faithfulness 
is the road to that which is truly glorious. Ordinary faithfulness, a long obedience in the same direction, is the way to glory. How many of us in this room had mothers who were looked down in the eyes of the world? Oh, you're just a stay-at-home mom. They were looked down in the eyes of the world. And yet these mothers were the most significant people in our lives, informing us in Christ Jesus. Forming eternal souls. People who will live forever. Or how many of us, I hope everyone in this room, would be willing to trade the fame and the glory that this world has to offer to be able to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master throughout all eternity. Jesus turned humanity on its head. Jesus came. He got down on his knees. He washed his disciples' feet, though he was their master. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most shameful way to die, Jesus took it. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to die as a ransom in the place of sinners. And Jesus pours out his spirit upon his people to enable us to follow him in this service. The great ones in all of eternity are the ones who are faithful in the littlest things in this life. There will be faithful saints, there will be widows, who stand nearer to Jesus in glory, who have more treasures, more happiness, more delight in Jesus forever than famous megachurch pastors or conference speakers. Ordinary, faithful obedience to Jesus, radically ordinary and radically faithful, should be cultivated and celebrated in the local church. Second, we should recognize the unique temptations that single women can face. And we should pray for and encourage our sisters in Christ. Because of the context of the UAE, we we don't have many younger widows around us who are in need of financial care and financial support. But we do have many single women. We have many single women here tonight in our church. And the longings and the temptations that younger widows can face can apply to our single sisters in the church. I'm sure that there's some of you in this room who can hear these words to marry and bear children and be busy at home. And you hear them not through cynicism, but you hear them through tears. Because you want that. You desire to have that. And yet for this season, the Lord has called you to be faithful as a single. Church, we may not fully understand what our single sisters in Christ are going through. I know I don't fully understand what you guys are going through. But we can pray for our single sisters. We can encourage them. 
just this past week, as I was working through this text, I was looking at our membership directory, and I stopped at every single picture of a single sister in Christ in our church, and I prayed for you. I prayed for you by name, that the Lord would sustain you, that the Lord would keep you near to Jesus, the Lord would provide for you. Some of you may not have a desire to marry. You may be content in your singleness, called in your singleness. And if that's the case, praise the Lord. But I know for others of you, this is a strong desire. And as a church, we should recognize that. And we should walk alongside our single sisters in Christ and care for them. They are not immune to temptation. They are not immune to sexual temptation. They can be tempted to loneliness and to discouragement. Our single sisters can be pressured by their families to marry someone maybe from another background or another religion, in order to be provided for or to bring honor to the family. Our single sisters can be tempted to idleness in other sins that follow. And so as a church, we should come alongside and we should encourage our single sisters in Christ. We should care for them, welcoming them into our homes and into our families, supporting them and walking alongside them as they follow Jesus faithfully. Please do not ask one of our single sisters, so why aren't you married yet? Or when are you going to get married? Get to know them as people. They will be your sisters in Christ throughout all eternity. It's worth getting to know them here and now. And single women, stay close to Jesus. I know that there are unique temptations, but Jesus is worth it. He is worth it anything that this world can offer. Third and finally, the church should care about its witness to a watching world. The way the church cares for those who are in need is a way of holding out the gospel to the watching world and saying, we value the people that so often are cast off from society. There's a reason in the Old Testament that God de defines himself as the defender of widows, the father to the fatherless. He's saying, the most vulnerable in society, I will care for you, and I will be there for you. And as a church, we should want to be there as well. The early church was known as its witness for caring for widows and caring for those who have been abandoned, those orphans abandoned to die. My prayer for Redeemer Alain is that we likewise would have that reputation in the city, that we would be costly in our care, and costly in our concern. And in doing so, we would show that we value God and his word and the family that he has created while we are here. I mentioned Alma at the beginning of the sermon. You don't have to be with Alma long to be able to see that she has lived faithfully for many, many years and that she is continuing to pursue Jesus. Her life looks very ordinary right now. Her life looks very normal right now. It looks unglamorous right now. And yet she is still faithfully encouraging the saints, faithfully pursuing Christ. And in doing so, she will receive treasure in heaven. And every conversation that she has points people to the hope that she has in Jesus. I pray that our church would be marked with the same ordinary, faithful, long obedience that Alma has 
and so bring glory to God and care for those who are around us. Let's pray.